God, thank you that you're with us. Thank you for a chance to worship you. I pray that you would just come and teach us. You would come speak through Michael, speak through your word. And that you would open our hearts to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stay standing for just a moment? We uh, return back now to our, as we're going through a series of our statement of faith. We've taken a break. We've talked about several things the last few weeks. Uh, this week and next week, we're going to talk about uh, the work of Christ. Um, and so uh, one of the things we do is repeat together uh, that part of our statement of faith concerning the work of Christ. So would you say with me together, we believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for our salvation. And you may be seated. Thank you. And while you're doing so, if you would turn to John chapter 17, it's where we will be this morning, John chapter 17. And while you're doing that, how many of you uh, have read, or I shouldn't ask that question, how many of you have read E.B. White? Do you know who E.B. White is? Charlotte's Web, Trumpet of the Swan, Stuart Little. And then also wrote a lot of, I guess what today people would call creative nonfiction, but back then they just call it essays. Um, wrote several essays which are uh, actually really well done. One of my favorite authors, especially children's authors, um, and Charlotte's Web is one of my favorite stories. I don't know that E.B. White uh, was a Christian or particularly spiritual or religious at all. Um, and so Charlotte's Web is certainly not an allegory, but it speaks this wonderful truth um, that sort of mirrors and portrays the gospel to us. Um, if you're familiar with the story, Charlotte is this spider and is able to write words in her web, and that amazes the people. Uh, people come from miles around to uh, the farm to see this spider who can uh, create words in her web. Um, and the reason that people are amazed is that is because spiders don't do that. Well, that's not what spiders do. For us who are reading the story knowing why she does that, it's even more amazing because what she's doing is she's showing compassion for a pig. I always need to think about that for a moment, right? The reason this is really amazing, not only can she write, but she's showing compassion for a pig. Now, what are pigs good for? Bacon. That's exactly right, right? They don't need to be showing compassion, Right? Nonetheless, we're amazed at what this spider does, what she's able to do, this work that she does, because she's creative, she's talented, she does what spiders don't do, and she does it in a compassionate way. What's interesting is Charlotte confesses herself that that's really not the most important thing that she's done, or that she, that she does. At the end of the story, she says that she has finally created what she calls her magnum opus, her greatest work. And it's not this wonderful writing in a web. It's something that most people that have flocked to see that web will never understand, will never see, will never be aware of. She's made an egg sack. <coughs> and in doing that, she's, in one sense, ended her own life. She's, her death is going to bring life to lots and lots of other spiders and that is going to spread far beyond the barn door where Charlotte spent her life. This kind of wonderful picture of the gospel through death, 
comes life to lots of other things, and that 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 her characteristic, who she is, uh, we assume we're led to believe. E.B. White wants us to believe that those characteristics will then spread out far beyond just that simple um, country barn. Uh, certainly, it's, it's not an allegory, as we've said, uh, but truth can be found in the, the strangest of places. And so as we look at our statement of faith, one of the things that, that it solely focuses on is the cross, um, which would we would say is Christ's magnum opus, His greatest work. What's interesting is, is that's not all that Jesus did. And this morning we're going to look at something that's not in that statement of faith, but nonetheless is um, a work of Christ. Because when I think of, when someone says, what was the work of Christ, my mind immediately goes to the cross. Because without that, nothing else really matters. Um, but in, in John's Gospel, there's, there's this verse that's always between fascination and perplexity. Um, I've always thought about and kind of scratched my head at and said, what's he talking about? So John 17, big picture, this is the last night of Jesus' life. He has gathered his disciples. This is called, from John 13 to 17, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, and so he is teaching his disciples kind of the last words of Christ before he's arrested and then ultimately crucified. And at the end of that teaching, he prays. In John 17, most of it is a, a long prayer. I'm going to read the first eight verses, um, and then we're going to look at and talk about this other work of Christ besides the cross. So we read these words beginning in John 17. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may, be glorif that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know everything that you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understand that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask, I ask on their behalf, I ask on their behalf, then I ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd use the words of, of your word to encourage us and to challenge us. I pray that you'd open our ears to hear and our minds to understand. And God, we ask that you would change our wills to be like you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. He says in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. I think, well, well that's not right. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. How could he have accomplished or finished the work that God has given him to do? It doesn't make any sense because without the cross, nothing else that he does really matters. From the miracles to the teaching uh, to the way he lived, if there is no cross, does that really make any difference. 
Because see, ultimately, Christianity is not about a moral code. It's not about a set of behaviors that God wants us to follow. It's about a person. Christianity is about Jesus. And as parents, what, what we don't want to do is we don't want our kids to grow up to be moral and follow all the right rules. We really want them to grow up to learn that they really need Jesus. Because it really doesn't matter if they've learned how to get along in society and learn how to behave in certain situations and have appropriate manners and learn how to watch their mouth and even be kind to strangers. If they haven't understood that they need Christ, then all that's a, a waste. And so it perplexes me when Jesus says, I've accomplished the work you've sent me to do. The good news is, is that, that he tells us what he means by that. He, he says two things, one in verse 6 and then one in, in verse 8, that, that he has done. I believe that's what he's talking about. So in verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. And in verse 8, he says, for the words which you gave me, I have given to them. So, two ideas um, of the work that Jesus did accomplish. Number one, he manifested God's name to the disciples. Um, what does that mean, he manifested his name? Well, someone's name was their character, was their uh, honor, uh, was there even their authority. And so, one of the things that Jesus did, one of the things that he accomplished was that he revealed or he showed the disciples and others what God's authority, what His character, what His honor would look like if it were walking around in skin and bones. He manifested, He revealed God's authority, He revealed God's character and His honor to the people that were around Him. That's the first thing He did. He revealed who God is to man in a, a tangible something you could touch and feel, John would say at the beginning of his first letter. Something that was understandable to our senses, right? Go back to Mount Sinai and the people said, no, we don't want anything to do with all that thunder and lightning and cloud that scares us, we're going to die. Moses, you go deal with God, we don't really want to deal with Him. Right? There was this separation between God and man. There was actually a curtain that stood between God's presence and men, and only the high priest could go behind that curtain, and only once a year, and only with blood. There was this, this, this distance between God and man. And so Jesus showed up and revealed what God would look like if He walked and talked and touched us. Second thing He did is He, he gave God's Word. In verse 8, For the words which you gave me I have given to them what it would look like for God to talk to us in the vernacular, right? It's not this booming voice of thunder. It's someone who is speaking either Aramaic or Greek, someone who's speaking Western North Carolina slang to us in a way that we could understand. We can hear God's Word. We can know it's not just these laws that are, that are codified for us in Genesis through Deuteronomy, but it's what that looks like when Jesus comes across someone and says, here's how this applies to this specific situation. This man, this woman, this disease, this hardship, this struggle, this doubt, this unbelief, this faith. Here are specific words of what it looks like if God were to come down and talk to man face to face. 
Everybody gets an idea of what it was like for Moses to go up on the mountain and talk to God face to face. And then in between those two, he tells us the result. Verse 7, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And then the second half of verse 8, And truly they understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So it's just like when, when Charlotte did that, right? Most spiders don't write words in their web, and so it was amazing. We read over and over again in the Gospels that people are amazed at the words and the works of Jesus because people don't act like that. It says, this isn't the way the scribes teach us. And the scribes knew the word backwards and forwards. They taught truth the way they understood it from the Old Testament, and, and people are scratching their heads going, who is this guy? This isn't the way normal people teach and act. It's because he wasn't normal. He was God. And because of what he did and because of what he said, the disciples came to understand, oh, this guy is from God. He's getting his words from God. Right? The work that he accomplished was to show humanity what it would look like for God to come and dwell in flesh and bone. For God to live as man, because it was different than the way any other man had ever lived. Just like different than spiders riding in webs. What's interesting is that, that I believe that John gets even more specific. I believe that, that this is inspired by God, that he's, he used individual authors' personalities and language and word choice and figures of speech to say exactly what he wanted to say to us. I also believe that God is incredibly creative, and if we observe carefully enough, there are numerous gems in this book, in these stories, if you will, that if we pay attention, we can go, aha, that's what he's talking about. And I believe John does that for us and paints a very clear picture of one very specific example of what it means that he accomplished his work. And it's because John uses those exact same words kind of at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So if you'll flip back to John chapter 4. Those exact same words, accomplishing his work. Some of you are familiar with the story. Jesus is traveling and he stops at a well and he sends the disciples to Subway to get lunch and he's just tired and he's resting and this woman shows up in the middle of the day and he begins to, to engage her in conversation. And he talks to her and what he does is he really, what he does is he offers her life. He offers her redemption. He offers her forgiveness. And so she goes back to town excited as all get out to tell the folks what's happened and the disciples come back and they say, hey, we got lunch. Right? Here's your, here's your BLT from Subway. And he says, I, I've already got food. Where did he get food? Right? He sent us into town to buy this and now we, we come back and he's already eaten. He says in verse 32 of John chapter 4, But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples are saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? So Jesus explains what he's talking about. 
My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. What he says is, I'm full on being obedient to the Father. I'm full of accomplishing His work. That's an interesting idea that we can actually be full, that we can be filled, that we can be satisfied by doing what we're supposed to do, by doing what God calls us to do. It's a very interesting concept because when I think of full, I think of a really good meal and then dessert afterward. When I think of being satisfied, I often think about when things go my way. That's what I think about being satisfied. When I get what I want. And Jesus says, ultimate satisfaction comes from doing what God wants, from doing His will. I don't need the Subway sandwich because I've been doing what God wants me to do. What is it He's been doing? What's interesting is, He has been, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, crossing boundaries that most people wouldn't dare cross. Certainly they wouldn't think that God would cross. First boundary was this woman showed up to him, a man alone. He shouldn't be talking to her, but nonetheless he engaged her. And he showed compassion to her as a woman from a man. Second boundary, the second strike against her, if you will, was that she was not Jewish. He certainly should not have been relating to her, nor sharing a drink. Would you get me a drink? Her mere touching of whatever implement she had to draw water would have made that water unclean and technically would have made him unclean had he drunk it. What's interesting is that Jesus always does things backwards. You can't make Jesus unclean, but he can make you clean. And what's interesting is that when we're united with Christ, people can no longer make us unclean. Only uncleanness comes from our own heart. And that's a wonderful truth when we suffer shame and humiliation at the hands of someone else. Ultimately, they can't make us unclean anymore. They can't impart their filthiness to us. The third strike against her was that she was, we would call, a sinner. Multiple counts of adultery, it seems. She was just not someone that that any good, respectable Jew would hang out with. She was a woman, she was not a Jew, and she was a sinner. Three strikes her out, and yet Jesus engaged her and gave her both compassion and truth. He didn't shy away from the fact that the way she was worshiping, the way her people were worshiping was incorrect. He communicated truth to her, I am the way, not the way you're doing things. But he exhibited compassion to her. He, he entered into her situation and gave her hope and offered her life. See, accomplishing God's work means responding to whoever crosses our path with compassion and truth that they might know forgiveness and freedom. I'm going to say that again. I think it's up on the screen. Accomplishing God's work means responding to whoever crosses our path with compassion and truth that they might know forgiveness and freedom. 
whoever crosses our path. Even those people that we're not supposed to relate to. Whoever crosses our path. See, that's the work of God. That's what brings satisfaction. There are other examples in in John, other examples in all the Gospels of Jesus doing things that were accomplishing our work. But it's interesting to me that 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 phraseology is repeated in that example because that really is the, the quintessential idea of what Jesus was about. He entered into people's lives wherever they were with compassion and truth. He did that all the time. Whether it was a good Jew or whether it was a Gentile sinning woman, over and over again, Jesus allowed the people that crossed his path to have conversation with him, to interact with him. And he showed them compassion. He offered healing. He offered forgiveness. He offered grace. And he always offered truth. And it's important for us to understand that because we're called to imitate him. And so what that means is, is when God brings people across our path, the first thing that should cross our mind is, am I treating this person the way Jesus would treat this person? We sang a song just a little while ago about no longer fearing men. Well, why should we no longer fear men? Well, because, because they really can't do anything to us. They can't impart shame to us. They can't ultimately hurt us because our, our eternity is secure. And so I'm free, finally. I can enter into their mess, their uncleanness, their sin, their lives, and offer them hope, offer them freedom, offer them forgiveness without fear of them contaminating us because the only thing that contaminates us is our own hearts. You see, that's where their filth comes from. It comes from what's inside us. And so if we're to imitate Him... As we go through our week this week, when God brings someone across our path, we need to be reminded, am I offering them compassion? Am I offering them truth? And that sometimes is is difficult to do because we're busy and we've got things planned and organized and my day is, is such... And sometimes we just don't even know what to say. I just confess that times I wish... Jesus would show up because he seemed to always have the right words and sometimes I don't think I ever have the right words. And so do we, we begin our day, God, help me to be the person that you've called me to be regardless of who comes across my path. Because even if we fumble with words, we can smile, we can offer a loving and a kind touch, we can offer an ear. Compassion is is not impossible to offer even if we don't have the words that Jesus seemed to always have the right place at the right time. So let me encourage you and challenge you this week as you go through your week when God brings someone across your path like the woman at the well or the co-worker or your kids or your spouse or your neighbor. Are you thinking, how can I in this moment accomplish that work? In other words... Do God's will show compassion and speak truth to whoever that happens to be. Because when we do that, God is glorified. And when we do that, lives are changed. What's interesting is that woman who was an outcast goes back and engages 
her town, the men of her town specifically. What's also interesting is, is knowing that they don't buy a single word she says turns the question around. Hey, I just met a guy who told me everything about me. Ah, he's probably not the Messiah. And they go, that woman's crazy. I bet this is. And the whole town goes out to see Jesus, right? And invites him to stay. And then two days later, they say, we don't believe because of what she said. Because we've spent time with the Savior. We've spent time with that one who accomplished, that one who showed us these Samaritans, these half-breeds, these unclean people. He stayed with us, which means he necessarily ate with them. He showed us compassion. He revealed God to us. We now know what God would look like, would talk like, would act like if he showed up and spent time in our hometown. And that's what he's called each of us to do. And we can only do that when we trust in Him, when we depend upon Him. So let me encourage you as you go through your week to begin each day praying, God, show me where I can show compassion and truth. Help me recognize when I need to do that. And then may we depend upon Him to be faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your, uh, your Word and Your blessing and the truth that is in it. How do we do? Depend upon You uh, to accomplish the work that You would have us to do. We confess that you have made us the way you've wanted us to be. We are your workmanship, Paul says, created in Christ Jesus for good works which you've prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. God, help us to recognize when those come about that we would walk in them and that we would experience the satisfaction and the fullness that Jesus talked about. That we wouldn't no longer thirst. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.